0: Hello again, Vetfolio Voice listeners, and thank you for joining me. We've got a great episode in store for you featuring Dr. Scott Weiss and sponsored in part by DECRA. In this episode, Dr. Weiss and I discuss a topic that is hugely important, and that is antimicrobial stewardship in companion animal medicine. We dove into a wide range of topics, but our main focus was on how antimicrobials are used in veterinary medicine, how their use has changed over time, and what we as veterinarians can do to maximize patient outcomes while minimizing antimicrobial use. As I mentioned, my guest is Dr. Scott Weiss. Dr. Weiss is a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. He's a professor at the Ontario Veterinary College, University of Guelph, director at the University of Guelph Center for Public Health and Zoonoses, chief infection control at the Ontario Veterinary College Health Sciences Center, and is a member of the Tripartite Global Leaders Group on AMR or antimicrobial resistance. We're so happy he's here with us today to help keep us informed so we can all work together to keep these bugs under control. Let's jump into our episode. All right, Dr. Scott Weiss joining me today. Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for being with me. Hey, thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. So we're here talking about antibiotic stewardship, which of course is a huge topic of conversation, both in the human medical field and in veterinary medicine. So what do you feel like are the primary factors that are driving antibiotic resistance?
1: Well, the big thing really is antibiotic use. We talk about misuse or overuse, and those are important, but it's any use. Anytime an antibiotic goes into a person or an animal or gets into the environment and exposes itself to bacteria, there's a chance for resistance to emerge or to spread. So anytime we use these drugs, we get further down that pathway towards resistance. The more we overuse them and the more we misuse them, the more we probably go there and the cost benefit switches, right? We use antibiotics to have a positive effect, knowing there's some risks. And the more we use them poorly, we don't get as much positive effect and we probably get similar or greater risk.
0: Absolutely. And maybe you can speak to this a little bit more, but in giving antibiotics, like you said, we're aiming for a positive effect, but we're also, you know, we're going to have to take the bad with the good because we get some negative effects when we use them as well.
1: Yeah. And sometimes we don't really recognize that when we think about adverse effects of drugs, you think about, you give something and you get an immediate reaction. So we give a vaccine and we get allergic reaction. We see that now we link it directly with what we gave and we understand there's a risk. Antibiotics, we see that to a degree. So you start a dog on antibiotics and he gets diarrhea. Okay, well that's an adverse effect of the drug and we know that's gonna happen sometimes, we talk about that. But we don't see the resistance issue because it's not something that's visible and we don't see it right now and it may manifest itself for a while, right? We might create a resistant bug in this dog And then the next infection it gets is with that, or it passes it to another animal, or it passes it to the owner. So you don't see that quite as much. And we often get into this mindset of, okay, things that we can directly see, we associate with something we do, right? So I'm trying to prevent this problem, so I'm going to change what I do. If I can't really see the problem, it's less motivation for me to think about it and to act.
0: Absolutely. I totally agree. Yet, so important to be conscious of these things and making good decisions.
1: Yeah, I think we just need to be thinking about the subject more because we focus on you know, the patient, obviously. We're trying to treat the patient, and we're thinking about some of the complications, but too often we're really just trying to get through the day, right? We're trying to take care of this patient. We're trying to get through this day, and we're not necessarily thinking down the road. And, and one of the analogies that I've kind of used lately is antibiotics are like checks, and right now we're writing checks that we can't cash we're not going to have the money in the bank in 10 years. Yes. The more we use an antibiotic, the more we create resistance pressures. And if you look back 15 years ago, the way people approached antibiotics was different because they didn't have these same issues. And if this continues, the things that we can treat easily right now, a lot of them aren't going to be as easily treated down the road.
0: Oh my gosh, you said it that so many times it's like that game time decision because you know, not even getting it through, getting through the day, sometimes it's, I just have to get through the next 30 minutes and it feels like the answer, but something we still have to keep in mind, even, you know, even though it seems like this far off issue, it's, it's not.
1: Yeah. And sometimes it's the easy way out. And one of the issues, like a lot of the stuff with antibiotics resistance or antibiotic use comes down to psychology. It's not medicine. The medicine is actually sometimes the easy part. It's the brain. And antibiotics have been called the most psychoactive drugs that we have, but that's because they act on the prescribers. They make us feel better. Yes. So you've got a situation where I don't know if I need an antibiotic. Well, okay, I'll use an antibiotic because hey, I, I think it won't hurt because I'm not thinking about these things. And we also get into this mindset, okay, if I don't give an antibiotic and something happens, well, that's my fault. I didn't do something. If I do give an antibiotic and something happens, well, that's the drug's fault or it's the manufacturer's fault. I did something. Like we're so tuned into doing something. And doing something isn't always the right thing to do. Sometimes not doing something is the right thing to do. And that's hard because we're tuned in to act. Clients expect us to act and they're paying money. And, you know, some people don't like to pay money for us to say, you know, it's going to get better. Let's just give it a little bit of time. They want that magical cure, even if it costs them more. So we've got a lot of psychology with prescribers and with owners that we need to navigate when we're thinking about antibiotics.
0: I feel like you just spoke to like all of the thoughts and things that go through my head on a typical day.
1: Well, that's good. Yeah, it's good. Thinking about it is good. We too often don't, right? It's just, sure. you know, it's, easy, it's easier not to. And one lot of things with antibiotics, we just kind of prescribe by rote, which isn't necessarily bad, but it's like, there's a lot of pattern recall in veterinary medicine. You've seen this so many times. We know what's going to happen. We know what the outcome is going to be. And I'm going to use this drug because I always use this drug. And most of the time that drug is fine, but we also get into patterns where, you know, I've been doing something that probably wasn't the greatest thing for a long period of time, or I was doing something that was okay, but I could do it better. So I could, you know, I've been treating for 14 days it's worked, everything's happy. I could probably treat for less, but do I want to rock the boat, right? You know, I can read stuff that says five days is fine. I've got to convince myself that five days is fine because I've sensitized myself, right? Because if if I give her five days and you know that one patient comes back and it's not quite perfect, I'm going to think again, that's my fault because I did something different. So we just, we don't like to rock the boat and some clients don't like us to either. And that's the battle between, you know, we have to educate them in a short period of time. And right. you know we have to keep them happy and keep them coming back and make sure they do what we want them to do. But we also have to make sure that we're doing the best we can for them and for their pet, even though they don't always realize it at the time.
0: Yes, absolutely. It, it's so many, just so many spinning plates at the same time and trying to, to balance the immediate. Um, and then like you said, the pattern recognition and clients. Can you talk about a couple of examples that maybe you've seen commonly or or heard about commonly where antibiotics are misused and how to maybe think about those differently and approach them differently?
1: Well, I could probably think about it in three different ways. So the decision to use an antibiotic, yes, no, that's one thing. And then which antibiotic to use and then how we use them, because we have potential problems in all those areas. So the one scenario is, okay, do we use an antibiotic? Yes, no. And there are a lot of situations where an infection isn't present or it's very unlikely to be present. A cat with dysuria, right? That's not likely a bacterial infection. That's probably a problem in its brain, not a problem with an infection. And, you know, having taken the time to talk to clients about that and to convince ourselves, even though we know it, that's one thing. But we do see a lot of situations where antibiotics are used, but they probably aren't needed. Feline urinary tract disease, you know, canine, feline, upper respiratory tract disease, where most of those are self-limiting diseases. Some things that we can treat topically or locally, skin infections, ear infections, where we can get you know, using antibiotics maybe or biocides, but we don't have to expose them systemically. Surgery. Sometimes we're using antibiotics for longer durations or for surgeries, we don't need to use them. So I got that yes, no question is one area. And then picking the drug. So all drugs aren't created alike when it comes to resistance. And ideally, we want to stick with the more narrow spectrum, kind of these older drugs that aren't as important for use in people and the ones that we don't use in our patients when they have serious infections. We want to save them. And the problem is some of the, the new drugs, they they they're really good drugs. They work well. Sometimes they're once a day dosing or they're so they're easier to administer. There are some good things about them, but because they're really good drugs and they're really important in people and they're really important for our serious cases, we want to reserve them so we don't burn them. Like antibiotics are use it and lose it drug. So the more we use them, the more we risk losing them. So there are situations where we jump to bigger gun antibiotics then we need to. We could get away with amoxicillin, but we go with a fluoroquinolone. And the fluoroquinolone is probably going to work really well, but we're one more step to losing that fluoroquinolone. And injectable antibiotics. It's easier to give a cat an injection than to give it a pill, but often the pill is the better option if it does need an antibiotic. So those things come together in which drug we're using. And then the duration. If you compare side by side what we do in animals with what you do in people, it's really different with durations. They tend to use much shorter durations than we do, and the reason they do is because they have more evidence. They say that okay, you treat for this long and it works, and that's written down and that's on a label or that's a guideline. We don't have that much information, and you know we're inherently cowards, right? So we always go a little bit longer. I don't really know seven to ten, maybe fourteen, just to be on the safe side, right? And this brings in a few issues. Is like I don't know how many. I have a cat, right? So I have a cat and a dog. My dog, I could get antibiotics into you for 14 days, but I'm lazy. And I probably wouldn't do it. You know, they're feeling better after a couple of days. I get less motivated. I forget. He gets better at spitting out. The cat, good luck with that. So I think we overestimate how well we actually treat a lot of patients long-term. 14 days or 7 days probably isn't 14 days or 7 days into the animal, so we've got some issues there. And we do, even if they do, we just overuse durations. So a lot of situations where you know a person they might use four days or five days, and we're going a couple of weeks, and the longer we go, it's more cost, it's more adverse event risk, it's more diarrhea risk, it's more hassle, it's more stress on the animal, and obviously there's more risk of resistance.
0: Absolutely. I'm thinking about what you said that seven to 14 days probably isn't seven to 14 days. I mean, how many times do we get somebody who comes back and they say, well, I had some of that medication you prescribed last time left over. So I just restarted them on that.
1: Yeah. Or they've already started it or they've already used it in the interim because the animal looked funny or got a cut or something. Yeah. People stockpile antibiotics. Very rarely do they bring back extras because they don't think about it. We don't talk to them about it. And they've paid for it. So they don't want to give back something that they've already paid for. Because it's not like we can resell it. We can dispose it for them, which is what we should be doing more of. We just, right. scenario scenario we really don't address. But yeah, a lot of people have a lot of antibiotics uh, on their shelves. They don't really know anything about. They might be expired, but it's not that unusual that they make, it, make their way into an animal or maybe a person, which is
0: scarier too. Right. Yeah. Especially considering some of the drugs we use that really shouldn't cross over. Yeah. So when we're when we encounter a case where we feel okay, do we use an antibiotic? We answer that first question. Yes, an antibiotic is indicated. What are just some good rules of thumb to keep in mind? Like we've talked a lot about duration and and I I think that's an important conversation because I feel like I feel like when I was taught a while back it was, you know, the longer duration so we make sure we kill the bug completely, but is that changing now?
1: Well, I think Well, it comes down to what are we trying to do with antibiotics, right? So we're not trying to sterilize the animal. It's the last thing we want to do.
0: we're We're not trying
1: to get microbiological cure at the infection site in most places, because a lot of places have a normal bacterial population and we have an immune system. Like we're trying to control disease. And that's, for me, that's my focus. And, you know, every day I'm talking about strange cases. One of the first things I ask is how's the patient doing, right? Because if the patient's doing fine, I may not care about the culture or what's going on. So we need to focus on what we're trying to do with the antibiotics, which is get things under control to help the body out. And that's where some of these shorter durations can be useful. So we need to be thinking about the overall case. Antibiotics are just one thing. Antibiotics aren't the magical tool, right? They're 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 really useful. Obviously, they're critically important for us. But an antibiotic doesn't fix a surgical lesion. We run into that. Antibiotics don't correct allergies or other underlying causes. Even though we keep throwing the antibiotics sometimes at patients like that, antibiotics should be there as part of the overall package. Not well. We'll treat this, and I won't worry about the allergic skin disease because we'll get this infection taken care of, and we'll worry about the next one next time. then the next time comes along and now they've got a more resistant infection so we need to think about the whole package when we're thinking about our our treatment plan antibiotics and non-antibiotics and then we need to think about what duration we really need and we don't have a lot of data for some things which is a problem we can look at humans uh, and sometimes the, the durations they use you know really kind of blow your mind if you haven't kind of been in that area before And an example I was talking to someone about a case earlier on today. It was a septic peritonitis. You know, septic peritonitis, pretty nasty disease. Obviously, animal needs antibiotics. They're pretty sick. In humans, the guidelines have shown that once you establish source control, so you've got someone, they've blown their appendix maybe, and they now they have raging septic peritonitis. They've gone in and fixed that surgically. Recommended antibiotic duration is four days it's been shown to be as effective as long durations. And most of the time I talk to people like that's, holy crap, four days. Like I'd be thinking a couple of weeks or more, or a yeah, you know, hospital, reaction. then transition them home on oral drugs and maybe step them down to a single drug. No, the, the key is like once the infection is gone, the infection is gone. We've got some really you know nasty infections that are actually really treatable. Cause you got sites where you get a lot of antibiotic there. They kill it really quickly. And that's the end of it. We sometimes equate severe disease with needs a lot of antibiotic or a lot of duration. And severe disease just means the patient's really ill. It could be a really susceptible bug, might need a really basic antibiotic, might just need a few days depending on where it is. We have to think about the overall patient and the disease. Like we're targeting a disease, we're targeting a clinical cure. We're not trying to say it's just this bug and this drug that we're interacting.
0: When we're talking about these different sites of what we might be treating, do you have some good resources? Because sometimes, especially if we have a really severe, severely sick patient and we almost go, I know like for me, I almost go into like panic mode where I'm like, okay, what, what could it possibly be? Let me make sure I have all four quadrants covered just so nothing gets by me because if this pet gets worse, it could, it could really be bad. Are there certain resources you would recommend where this is the most common bug that you're going to find for this type of disease process and what types of antibiotics we should be reaching for?
1: Yeah, we don't have as much guidance as they do in in humans, but we've got more coming in They're a bit patchy. So we have good guidelines through ESCAPE, the International Society for Companion Animal Infectious Diseases for Urinary Tract Disease, Respiratory Disease, and, and Skin Disease. And these are updated periodically. Different countries have different guidelines and the national guidelines have tended to be fairly high level, but they're getting better now. And one of the things we're gonna start seeing a lot more of very soon actually is more app based things. So you can go onto your app and you click on urinary tract and you click on palinephritis and it gives you, here are the bugs, here are the drugs, here are the doses. And these are things that we're gonna see some rolled out later on this year. So I think a lot of it's, it's, it's coming. We don't have you know the big studies and all the data behind them like they do in people, but you know, it's more accessible information. And, you know, a lot of situations you get, you know, really specific things. We don't have a lot of information for right now, but general concepts can get you a long way. So, you know, whether it's septic peritonitis or some other severe, you know, septic case coming in, you know, we're going to approach them initially probably the same way, you know, like you said, with broad spectrum coverage. And then one of the things that we always forget to do or are kind of unwilling to do is to de-escalate. And like being broad is perfectly fine. That example, you had a really sick animal. If I guess wrong, it's probably going to die. Okay, so I'm going to be broad or aggressive, however I want to say in my initial therapy, I'm going to cover everything, but I don't need that the whole time because I'm hopefully going to figure out what it is, the patient's going to stabilize and I can narrow it down. And we tend not to do that and that's called de-escalation. So starting off with a combination of drugs that covers everything and then we realize, okay, I don't need all those because I got a culture back or, I know what's most likely there, and now that the patient's stable, I can drop and focus on the most likely bug. Because, you know, if it's something weird, I've still got time to catch up because he's stable, as opposed to if I miss when they're really sick, they're going to die. And these are the, again, coming to the psychological aspects. We just don't think about it. We don't want to rock the boat. And this is how I see examples of cases that are on five different antibiotics. And seriously, because they come in on a combination and someone adds on something and adds on something else and someone adds on something else. And some of those additions maybe made sense, but not without subtraction. Because you get into a bunch of drugs that are doing the exact same thing, leading to interactions, more costs, they're gonna get diarrhea when they're on that many drugs. Versus saying, okay, we got these. Yeah, and that wasn't the best drug. So I'm gonna stop it, and I'm gonna switch with something else. And then one of the things that we also don't think about, this is where you get into what bugs are involved, the comment you had there. So, okay, I've got, I'm starting this treatment and it's not working. So is it the antibiotics fault is the question we sometimes don't forget. If there's a leak in the gut, antibiotics aren't gonna help, right? If there's some other underlying problem, antibiotics aren't gonna do it. But if this looks like a bacterial infection and my combination here isn't working, well, what breaks through that? So often we see, you know, we just switch, you know, we'll run on this drug and we'll just pick another drug as it's one we use. But when you back up and you think, okay, anything that's going to be resistant to that first drug, it's almost certainly going to be resistant to that second drug just because of the bugs that we see. And that's, I think, where we get some of the disconnect between, you know, really understanding what bugs and what drugs are involved in different diseases. And that's that's the step we need to get a little more. So they come in, they're on this, and they, they're breaking through this. You know, usually I can come up with one or two leading candidates for what's going on and we can tailor the treatment as opposed to just switching it. And that's how we, in an antibiotic resistant era, that's what we need to learn more about and talk more about. And there's not a good reference for that. So it's not like you can go up and say, I've on, I've been on this drug, I'm on this drug and, and they're not working what is it likely you know you could talk to someone like me would come up with some ideas but there's not a great resource with that right now which is why we have problems with antibiotic resistance right antibiotic resistant bugs aren't inherently more virulent they're not more likely to cause severe disease but where we run into problems is we don't treat them appropriately because they come in and we put them on a drug and that drug doesn't work right so they're basically untreated until we get the culture result back or see what happens so they cause worse outcomes but they themselves are not inherently more virulent if that makes sense If we get the right drug, they'll be as easily treated if we don't get the right drug at the start.
0: Yeah, no, I think that definitely makes sense. Just that really targeted treatment and trying to, you have to get the drug that'll kill that bug. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some cases where antibiotics are used, where they shouldn't be used? I know you mentioned a cat with lower urinary signs, which I think is one of the primary candidates that we see where antibiotics maybe aren't necessary. But what are some of the most common cases you see where you're like, I don't think we need antibiotics in that case?
1: Yeah, well, I'd say cats with lower urinary tract disease are a big one. Uh, dogs with typical CIRDC or kennel cough. You know, it's the dog that comes in and it's coughing. And it's got some runny eyes and it's maybe a little bit depressed. Often they're just whipping around the room coughing, right? That dog doesn't need antibiotics. And we need to think about why we're using antibiotics. So, viral infections, we're not going to use them, obviously. Mild infections, you know, we've got an immune system. Unless we've got evidence that this is causing disease, you know, we don't really worry about it. And that's why with respiratory guidelines, we typically say, you know, if they've got just an upper respiratory tract infection and we don't have evidence it's progressing to pneumonia and it's not. It's chronic we're not getting into 10 days you know no antibiotics makes sense you know cough suppressants rest that's what we need to do same thing with the, the feline analogy most of these are viral upper respiratory tract infections sometimes they can get a secondary bacterial infection and that's why we need to assess them so do they have anything that looks like it's progressing but if not then obviously we can get why get away without it uh, some skin infections now they're bacterial infections but we can treat them topically And anytime we can treat something topically, you know, we can get at the site of infection. Obviously, we don't have to worry about having to administer it orally, but we can use things that we can't use systemically. We can use biocides. We have different issues. We don't get that antibiotic resistance pressure the same way. And um, they're highly effective. So the situations where we use antibiotics when we would have a viable alternative, and that could be skin. Other things like surgery. Um, We do use a lot of antibiotics in surgery, and certainly they are needed for a lot of surgeries. There are a lot of surgeries we don't need them though. And this is, again, is the the two components of that. One is the yes, no. So a lot of surgeries that are clean, basic procedures, young, healthy animals, and are quick. And we just don't have evidence that antibiotics are needed. And the infection rates are really low. And then we've got some where, yeah, antibiotics are indicated but just around the time of surgery. and When we think about surgery, it's the period of risk that's the important point. And the period of risk is a really important concept for me because that's when we want antibiotics on board. And when it's done, we don't care. So a period of risk in surgery starts when you make the first incision and it ends a little bit after you close. Like you don't get a magical seal when you put the last stitch in. And that's why, you know, up to 24 hours after is still within that periop window. But after 24 hours, antibiotics probably aren't going to do anything because I've either killed it or it's resistant. You know, if there, if I deposited some bacteria at surgery and I've had effective concentrations there because I used the drugs right at surgery, should have killed it then. And if I continued maybe a dose after surgery, you know, if it hasn't been killed by that, it's not going to be killed by that. And if we look at the human analogies, this is one where it freaks people out sometimes saying, okay, here's a list of surgeries they do in people. What do you think they do for antibiotics? And it put up, you know, heart transplant. I and mean, you know, I could, Gonna put you on the spot here and ask you what you think for a heart transplant, but unless you want to, I won't bother. But in terms of, I mean, I'm go curious to, take a guess. to know so the did, answer. Okay, I, so you got a heart I transplant. Like... So you got a long procedure. Someone's really sick going in. They're going to be immunocompromised by disease plus by drug on the way out. Pretty major procedure. They've got, you know, it's foreign material in. Um, there may be stainless steel in there closing up the rib cage. How long do you think they would go with antibiotics?
0: I'm gonna go off what you said earlier and say four days since you said that for septic peritonitis. Yeah, that's
1: 24 hours. Really, it's the, it's the period of risk. So once they're closed and you got 24 hours, like there's, if it's there, I've either killed it or I haven't. And if it's not no. there, it's not there. If it's not there, then I don't need an antibiotic. And the other thing is, there are some patients, this, our patients or the human patients, you know, they're just gonna get an infection, right? They've got risk factors. You know, so this dog's just screaming for a complication. If I got them on an antibiotic, it's still screaming for a complication, but it's gonna get one with one of the resistant bugs that it certainly has in or on it. So by extending antibiotics, maybe you drop the infection rate a little bit, but you make it more likely we're gonna see a resistant bug. And you know, I'd rather have a slightly higher infection rate with things I can kill than a lower infection rate with a methicillin-resistant staph. Amen, Even if we drop the infection rate, which we don't necessarily know we do. So this is how we start thinking about how, how do we reduce the overall amount of use? because if I've got a surgical case and you know it gets a dose a half hour before surgery and it gets a dose after surgery or maybe intraop if it's a long procedure, the antibiotic selection pressures, you know, it's relatively limited there versus if it gets dose before surgery and after surgery and it goes home in five days of whatever. Like that's going to cause a lot more selection pressure. So we can still use them and do less you know, damage from a resistance standpoint if we can narrow those durations.
0: That's interesting. 24 hours on a patient that's severely immunocompromised. I feel like this is, I, I can't wait for some of this information to translate over to the veterinary side and, and see what, what some of these studies start to show.
1: Yeah, and the problem is they're they're challenged to do, it. they're expensive and they're hard to do to get follow-up. Right. That's why we don't have a lot. And again, this gets to the mental side of it, right? So you talk to, sur- to surgeon and say, okay, you know you don't need antibiotics for this case. Yeah, I really don't. Are you using antibiotics? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because we always do. And you know, if, if I don't use an antibiotic and it gets an infection, I'm not gonna think that's my fault. the client's gonna think that's my fault. What if it gets an antibiotic and it's diarrhea or has a complication, do whatever whatever? Well, you know, that's the antibiotic It's that happens, that's the same so. stuff we were talking about before. Yeah, it's yeah. just gonna happen. So it's it's you know, we have situations where we know what to do and we're just still uncomfortable doing it. And that's where the psychology comes in.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you about the psychology. Like it seems like Getting out of that, um, you know, of course, every individual patient is important to us, and many of us are are perfectionists by personality. And so it's like, you know, if that one individual patient were to get an infection postoperatively, like you said, you feel like it's your fault. Your heart goes out to that patient. It's like, oh, well, that happened and that was terrible. So now I'm just going to do antibiotics. So it doesn't happen again, but maybe having that longer term view of maybe I'm not getting more, you know, these infections now, but we're going to have problems down the line.
1: Yeah. And we get really biased by a single incident, right? I'm sure we all know that's our cells where I won't do this. Why not? Oh, that that something bad is going to happen, and well, something bad happened to them once 25 years ago, and they decided they're never going to do it again, even though everyone else is using it standard of care. We we start, and because it's still, because you, you get the emotional side of it, right? Because yes. it, you get the complication, and you got to deal with the animal, and you got to deal with the owner, and all the hassle, and we don't see our our positive ones, right? The 99. Point whatever percent that go well, you don't see an infection. And you can't prove to yourself you actually did anything good versus the one that you see screaming in front of you. You may know you didn't cause it, but still you get that thing in the back of your head that says, well, maybe I could have done something different.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So take it just kind of reframing the whole thing. Yeah. What about probiotics? Do you recommend doing probiotics either after a course of antibiotics or during
1: Now, probiotics have been pretty disappointing in terms of this type of disease. Um, I did a fair bit of work on probiotics initially, and haven't really done much in a while. Uh, I think if we look at humans, there's not good data on them. That's where more of the the information is coming from. Then probiotics can do different things. I think that data for probiotics in dogs and cats still isn't very good, but it's best focused on inflammatory disease, so IBT because the interaction of, of the gut microbiota and the immune system. If we have you know any kind of reasonable data showing efficacy, that's the type of thing we'll see it with. When it comes to, okay, I'm giving an antibiotic and I'm screwing up the gut microbiota, so I want to get it back to normal, probiotics are actually a really minor component of what's there normally. If you look at what changes with antibiotics, it's not you know, it's not like we lose the five probiotic bugs and we give it to them and it bounces out. It's actually quite different drug cl- or bug classes that we give as a probiotic versus what we kind of knock out with an antibiotic. There's probably no downside. There's there's a study from a couple of years ago where they looked in people and the mice and they showed that actually probiotics delayed the return of the gut microbiota to normal. They showed a fecal transplant, a stool transplant got you back to normal quickest. Doing nothing was next, giving the probiotics slowed things down because the products were just different bugs, right? The probiotics were in there, they're establishing themselves, but they're not the stuff that was missing. So I don't think there's really a downside to it. And this is one of these things where sometimes it makes people feel better. There's some situations, probably that right animal in that right situation, the right probiotic, everything comes together and it maybe works. And it's something we're not going to be able to sort out of in a study because there are a lot of variables, variables there. I don't personally use them. If someone says they wanted to use them, I'm not going to argue against using it though. I don't think there is a significant downside to it, but it's not something I would use as a routine thing.
0: But it is something I can use to treat myself psychologically and, you know, not, and treat hurt, the owners not hurt you. an animal. Yeah.
1: And some and this is another one, I guess, we talking about where we overuse antibiotics and GI disease is, is a huge component of that acute diarrhea. Now, there are more efforts now with some guidelines that are coming out to try to reduce the amount of metronidazole use, for example, because we... We use a lot of it. And, and and one way I sometimes frame this is say, you know, think about how often you have diarrhea. Don't tell me how often you have diarrhea. Think about how often you have <laughs> diarrhea or your kids have diarrhea. And how often do you get an antibiotic for that versus how often does your dog get diarrhea and it gets an antibiotic for it? Like our dogs and cats are so much quicker to go on antibiotics, you know, because they don't have a toilet like yeah yeah, because we yeah it's gross yeah I don't like it but I flush it and I'm gone versus the dog it's on the floor or it's outside and I see it and if they've got urgency to it yeah we've got that component there too so we we use antibiotics for acute diarrhea you know and they get better despite what we do so that's another situation where you know we can reduce the antibiotic use a lot but something like a probiotic again I don't think it's going to help but I think it's going to hurt less than an antibiotic. So sure. again, the, the client comes in and they just spent, you know, a reasonable amount yeah. of money for an exam and they don't recognize the value of the exam, right? That they're coming in, they want something. And they'll right. be thinking they spent a hundred bucks or whatever on an antibiotic or on a vaccine or something they don't think they spent for the consultation and I'll hear some stuff on the side. So the probiotics, I, th- I think, like I said, I don't think they're going to harm. I don't think they're going to help in most situations for an acute diarrhea, but I'd rather have them go on a probiotic than an antibiotic if they're just this typical, you know, pretty bright, happy, alert, acute non-hemorrhagic diarrhea.
0: Sure, absolutely. Just, you know, something to try to help control all of that. I feel like you've spoken so much to the psychological component that I think we don't give enough credit to when it comes to antibiotic use. So with that in mind, what's one thing that you wish every prescriber knew and practiced when it came to antibiotic use?
1: Yeah, it's a good question because I'm not sure there is really one thing. And I think they're, they're, what
0: are the top 10 no, Yeah, i'm just yeah, <laughs> go
1: i think there are two issues there's one what, what i wish people would know and there's i think one that i wish people would do and it's and i think probably the do is more important because we do know a lot and we maybe don't package it that way or think about it a lot that way but i think one of the things that would be useful to do is you know think about why we're using the antibiotic like just put a little more thought in as opposed to i pull this drug off the shelf because sometimes that's not, it's not the, the right drug what am i trying to treat do i need an antibiotic? What's what's the reason I'm doing this? And we're not going to do it all the time because we do things by kind of, you know, I see this and this is what I do. And that's I perfectly fine a lot of the times. But I think we need to step back and think a little bit more. Okay, why are we doing this? And especially when we're changing what we do. Because you get into this, you know, the definition of an insanity thing where this antibiotic didn't work. So I'm just going to try this other antibiotic. And that doesn't work, I need to try this other antibiotic. And you know, if your first antibiotic didn't work and you're doing a random guess, it's not likely your second one's going to work. Maybe you get lucky. Where the second one is going to work is when you figure out what the problem is. You know, they figure out, okay, it's probably this resistant bug, so we will go here or it's got some other problem and an antibiotic isn't gonna fix it. And I know I dodged your question a little bit in terms of, you know, what do I wish people would know? And maybe it's just the recognition that, you know, antibiotics are potentially the most important medical discovery of our time. And I'm not sure that's an exaggeration because you think about what we do with antibiotics and what we can't, couldn't do without them. If we didn't have antibiotics, we wouldn't have transplants, right? Because we, or you would, and you would most likely die we wouldn't have the same degree of chemotherapy, or again, we would, but we would lose most of our cancer patients to secondary infections. They wouldn't get a chance to survive their cancer. We wouldn't have a lot of procedures. We'd have huge childhood mortality rates. We'd have huge maternal mortality rates. We forget about these things because the antibiotics have been so effective. And we talk about, you know, the end of the antibiotic era, and that's overblown. We're not going to be at the end of the antibiotic era, but the bugs are faster than we are they are adapting much more quickly than we are. And there's not money in antibiotic development, so we don't have new drug classes. And this is getting a bit soapboxy. But this is, I think, what we need people to, to think about and realize that, you know, antibiotic resistance is a big issue. It's a huge issue in people, and most of that's driven by use in humans. Like, we talk about use in animals a lot. And yeah, it's relevant majority of the problems in people are from how they use antibiotics in people, just like the majority of the problems in animals are from how we use them, but things do cross. We see stuff coming from human medicine. MRSA was a great example. That's a direct reflection of humans. Some of these resistant gram negatives that we see, that's a direct reflection of humans and and also to some degree for food animals, especially in our raw fed dogs where we see resistance. So I think we need to realize that antibiotic resistance is a big enough deal that we need to pay attention to it. And it, there's a lot more awareness about it now. And again, on the, the human side, it's been talked about as being one of the, the, one of the biggest threats to humanity, which again seems pretty overblown, but you talk about lists from, from groups that don't have any stake in it. Like the, there's no horse in the race for them saying antibiotic resistance is important, but they'll say climate change, armed conflict, antibiotic resistance, and maybe a couple others, but it's in the top three and the top five because, of the you know the health impacts of the millions of people a year that are going to die from them, the economic impacts, which have the potential to rival the the last global economic downturn on a persistent basis because of the impact, the demands in the healthcare system, all these things come together. And for us, same thing. If the majority of our infections are resistant, we run into problems of treating our patients. We get cost to clients for all the hassles and the extra things we have to do. We get more pressure to actually have fewer drugs the more resistant bugs that we see the fewer antibiotics we might have compounded because they're resistant plus if we start using the important human drugs a lot more a little greater chance they're going to come and say no you're done you can't access these drugs like they have in some countries there's some countries in northern europe for example where it's illegal for a vet to use some of these big gun drugs and drugs that we use in, in North America because we see those resistant bugs. So there are a lot of reasons, again, this is getting fairly so boxy, but it's because it's an important issue and we don't think about it in a day-to-day basis, right? Because you don't see a lot of these infections if you're not, especially at a referral center, but you do see enough of them. And if you think back five years ago, right? How often did you see a resistant bug that was hard to treat and you had to do extra cultures and, and switch drugs? Yeah, not very often. How, do you, how often do you see it now? Yeah, sometimes. How often do you think you're gonna see it in five years? Right. This is going to keep going. I don't want to think
0: about that. That's yeah. scary. <laughs>
1: well, I like often ask audiences, like, who saw an MRSP infection in the last six months or whatever, and you get a bunch of them put their hands up? Who would have seen an MRSP infection five years ago if I asked that? Not too many. Ten yeah, years there were ago, definitely less. probably none, right? So, you know, things wow. go up and MRSP is not the only or the last ones. So we have to realize that, that we're running into more issues and we're running into fewer options in some cases. It's still the minority, which is good, but that minority is still important when it's that patient in front of you and that owner in front of you. And it's the infection that we maybe can't treat.
0: Well, Dr. Reese, this has been, you know, an amazing talk. And one of the reasons that I love doing these podcasts, because I I love getting to sit here and pick your brain about this kind of stuff that is so important talking about, you know, the psychological component of antibiotic use and the long-term effects that we may not appreciate because we're so focused on the immediate. And I think those are hugely important things that we need to remember and stay focused on. So thank you so much for all of this. Are there any closing thoughts you want to share with us?
1: No, I think that's great. I think we just need to realize that, you know, they're, they're great drugs. They're important drugs. We need to keep using them and we need to just think as we use them.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you again.
1: Great, thank you.
0: All right, everyone. I hope you found that episode as interesting and informative as I did. I wanna say a big thank you to Dr. Weiss for all of the fantastic information. Thank you to Dekra for sponsoring this event and a huge thank you to all of you for joining us. If you'd like to find more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on Vetfolio's webpage. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.